Hey everyone, uh, Domingo Serrata here, Youth Director at Genesis Church, and I'm once again super excited for part three of the fourth quarter with Roger Blackmore. And without further ado, Roger, please take it away. Okay, thanks Domingo. So, uh, hey, if you're, if you're uh, joining this podcast for the first time, just a little bit of uh, explanation of uh, why the fourth quarter is really quite simple. Uh, I'm 69 years old, will be 70 in June, and if my life was a football game, I'd be in the fourth quarter, uh, probably late in the fourth quarter, maybe even o- overtime, but we won't go into that, who knows. Uh, but but the, the idea really was, um, I began to look back and, and honestly, um, modestly think maybe there are some things I've learned in almost 70 years of life, um, 50 years of marriage, and 50 years of pastoring, it'll be in July of 2020. Maybe there are a few things I've learned that are worth just um, sharing with other folks. And that's the origin of this podcast. So the first thing that I, um, I, I really started to highlight last week was you've got to live for your passion. And what I said was uh, a lot of people are very, um, they're, they're very strong advocates of a balanced life. Uh, and, you know, balance is boring. balance is nonsense it means you've got to do stuff you don't really want to do but you ought to do it and like who wants to live that way we only pass this way once Mm. so i'm a great proponent of find your passion and live for it that having been said it took me quite a number of years to really fully discover what my passion was i started pastoring when i was 20 years old feeling insecure in the position thinking i really could do it but wondering whether people would recognize that and so there are there those things kind of clouded my judgment and my priorities for years so i talked about last episode i talked about the fact that i am passionate about my faith and that was the first thing that i'm passionate about what i wanted to just um, share a few thoughts about today and experiences in is that i'm passionate about my family Finding a work-life balance is as difficult for a pastor as for anyone and may well be more difficult than for most because we don't work nine to five. Um, We don't clock in and clock out. Uh, We need to be available and are available to people 24-7. And I must say, in the early years, I didn't get that right. Mm. Um, In fact, nowhere near right. Because I guess part of that was in my mind. I needed to be able to prove to myself and to others that I really did have what it takes. So I was super pastor. Always available. Ready to fly to your side. Support you in every crisis, however minor. I was there right beside you. Be there to offer informed, authoritative advice any and every situation though half the time i didn't know what i was talking about but we won't go there i was also prepared to respond to every invitation to travel wherever i was needed when my services were required as a guest preacher that was the way i was in in fact you know the, the the beginning of the development of our family i guess i'd call it the birth of our first child our daughter charlotte Charlotte was born in February of 1972. 
Um, it was wintry. It was, there was snow on the ground. We lived in Berkeley in the northeast of England. The nearest hospital was in the city of Durham, about nine miles away. And I remember the night that Jill started um, having contractions. That's the word. She started having her contractions. And, uh, you, you know, we didn't know, I, we didn't own a car. We lived in this town. We were dirt poor. So we called an ambulance and the ambulance came and I went with her in the back of the ambulance into the hospital. And, and uh, I was there. They didn't let father stay and see the whole procedure, which to be really honest, I'm sorry to say this, I was totally happy about. Um, but I waited in the hospital till I got news. Charlotte was born at four something in the morning. And then I kind of hung out with Jill for a bit. Then they threw me out of there. And I just waited until the first bus of the day. And I got the bus back home. I didn't sleep all night. I went back to see Jill in the hospital the next day. And in the evenings, the evenings were the time where, where just fathers were allowed to come. But that evening, I had been invited weeks before to preach at the midweek service, the Wednesday night service, in the biggest church in our area. I was all set. I'd got the sermon ready weeks before. I was really looking forward to the big occasion. I was lucky if I had 35 people in my church on a Sunday. This church had over 500. This was like a big moment. Mm. And I had a choice to make. But the sad thing was, I didn't have a choice to make. Because in my mind at that time, it was a no-brainer. Mm. I went and preached. And I left my wife by herself with no visitor, while all the women around her had, had their husbands coming to spend an hour with them that evening. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying I didn't start off too well. And if you think that is bad, well, in the interest of full disclosure, it gets worse. A few months after Charlotte was born, Jill developed gallstones, and she suffered a lot of pain. And while the decision had been made that she needed to have her gallbladder removed, what that meant in the British healthcare system was she was simply placed on a waiting list. So it was months before she was given a date for surgery. Months during which she was literally crawling the floor with pain some nights. But finally the call came. She went to Dryburn Hospital in Durham where Charlotte had been born. Now, there was no such thing as orthoscopic surgery back in the early 70s. By the time my doctors decided my gallbladder was past its expiration date, which was 40 years later, it came down to a simple procedure with a couple of small incisions and an overnight stay in hospital. But in 1972, they cut you virtually the whole length of your torso and the recovery period started with at least two weeks of hospitalization. Jill's gallbladder was evicted on a Tuesday morning in August of that year, and the procedure took a lot out of her. That weekend, I'd been, sounds familiar now, right? That weekend, I'd been booked to speak at some special services in a really good church in Yorkshire, the county to the south of us, about 120 miles away. I was planning to leave home on the Friday and then would return on the Monday. 
It never occurred to me to cancel that engagement. My mother had come to look after Charlotte and Jill did insist that I go. So as I began the journey south, I went into the hospital to see Jill. She looked ghastly. It seemed that every breath caused her severe pain. And so every breath was a struggle. I had never seen anyone look as ill. And for a moment, I began to wonder if she was ever going to recover. Was my beautiful wife dying? I was torn. What to do? And to my great shame, I kissed her goodbye, told her I'd see her on Monday, and set off on my travels. Thankfully, she was still there after the weekend and looking a little stronger. And after a period of convalescing, she eventually returned to our small family. But I'll never forget the imbalance in my own life where my own need for affirmation took priority over the very real needs of my wife. Now, I wouldn't want to give the impression that experience cured me, or even that I saw it for the awful neglect that it was. As I received increasing invitations to speak in different parts of the country and eventually in other countries, my own search for significance meant I accepted everyone with little regard to my young family. In fact, one year I was away from home for Charlotte's birthday in February, Jill's birthday in March, and for Jonathan's birthday in November, I was preaching in London, but I booked a flight to come home in the evening, the day of his birthday. So if everything went according to plan, I would arrive home at about 9.30 at night in time to say goodnight to him as he went to bed. But I was delayed getting to Heathrow Airport. I missed the flight and it was the last one going from Heathrow to Aberdeen, Scotland that night. And I remember standing there calling home and I was in tears and I realized I'd missed the third family member's birthday that year after all. I still don't always get things right. There was a time when I was given the details by my siblings about the celebration they'd planned for our parents' 40th wedding anniversary. And I, ex I had to explain to them I wouldn't be able to attend because it was 600 miles away on a Saturday night and I must be home and in church Sunday morning, which would be impossible if I joined them. The family honoured my parents without my presence. Sadly, there never was a golden wedding celebration. My mother died a few months before reaching that milestone. I couldn't tell you when it happened. But somewhere and somehow, in the midst of pastoring, parenting, and preaching around, I came to the realization that the most precious thing I had in this world was the family that God had given me. Of course, we all wonder from time to time where we could have still done better in our roles as spouses or parents, and I'm sure that we could 
But there came a point where family became a major focus for me. And unashamedly, I say that's a priority in my life. There's a story I love to tell. I was sitting in the Georgia Dome one February morning in the 90s. It was February the 14th. The event was a huge pastor's conference that had been arranged by a ministry for Christian men called Promise Keepers. I was sitting way up in the nosebleed section of the Georgia Dome listening to John Maxwell. Many of you might know as a leadership guru, outstanding communicator. I'd heard him several times before, loved to hear him speaking. And to me, he was the deciding factor as whether I was going to even go to that event. I wanted to hear John Maxwell. So Maxwell was there on the stage and he was waxing eloquent on, on how to make sure your family comes first in your ministry. He told a few stories about pastors who had neglected those dearest to them. And of course, they struck a chord with me because of how my life had been. And then I had an epiphany. If family should come before ministry, what was I doing sitting in a pastor's conference over a thousand miles away from home on Valentine's Day? And in that moment, I made up my mind that Delta Airlines permitting, I would head right back to New York instead of taking the rest of the scheduled events and flying home the next morning as planned. We didn't have cell phones back then, but I persevered with a good old payphone. I was able to switch my ticket for an early afternoon flight. I'd arrive home a day early and surprise the whole family. I felt good, noble. I was doing the right thing. It was dark as I pulled into my driveway about 6 p.m., it was very dark. In fact, there was not a single light on in the house and no one was home. Here was I making my valiant return to be the husband and father I should be and spend Valentine's Day with those I loved most and not a single one of them was anywhere to be found. I would later discover that Charlotte was going out to dinner with her boyfriend. Jill had got together with a friend for dinner and Jonathan, as I knew, was not yet home from his job in Manhattan. So the dog and I sat alone in semi-darkness for the next 90 minutes. Jill had left Jonathan's dinner plated and ready, so as I heard his car pulling in, I put it in the microwave and was very pleased indeed that at last I could have some company. We chatted as he ate and then I unburdened myself about why I was back from Atlanta sooner than expected. I told my son how much John Maxwell's talk had impacted me and went on to ask Jonathan's forgiveness for the fact that through much of his earlier years, I was an absent father, away preaching when I should really have been home. He listened intently as my eyes started to fill with tears and then he interrupted my mea culpa with the words I'll never forget. He said, Dad, that's the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. You've always been a great father. And though you traveled a lot when we, when we were younger, when you were at home, you were far more engaged with us than any of my friends' fathers were with them. I cried some more. Maybe I hadn't totally blown it after all. 
And however my early years in ministry had been, there was now no doubt that it was family first. Live for your passion. I am passionate about my family. was yeah talk about a really uh, powerful heavy chapter roger obviously something uh, i think out of the stuff we broke down so far in the three parts the most vulnerable uh i think and i love that about this is that you're really kind of laying out your flaws instead of like grandiosely talking about all your victories and things like that's really beautiful but uh first off um what do you? What are some pitfalls? What are some warning signs that someone in ministry, man or woman, could avoid? If uh, things they could avoid that would uh, prevent them from coming to this realization of being passionate for your family first? What are some things they can avoid? You think are warnings? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question. Um, I I think honestly, um, in twenty twenty, there are some different pitfalls <laughs> than there were perhaps back in nineteen seventy. Yeah. When I started out, and and I think one of them is being present with your family. Mm, that's good. Um, when I get up in the morning, I always switch my my cell phone off at night, and that, that's it. I'm sorry, I'm done. Um, so I switch my cell phone off at night. When I when I switch it back on in the morning, I've generally got messages, mm. and um, I will be waiting for the kettle to boil for my morning cup of tea at 6.30 in the morning mm -hmm. and I'm answering people's messages. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because, um, you know, all church work doesn't take place in office hours. Mm. Um, but I think there come points, like, later in the day. Yeah. Like, when I'm home, I'm home. And um, because of the phone and because people can get a hold of us any time, yeah. we're not obligated to answer every text we get. Mm. Um, every message that we receive, every email that comes in at the time that we get it. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, uh, just just the my own inner insecurities, I want to be there for that person. You know, I want to I want to make sure I can help them. Yeah. And I don't want them to feel as if I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ignoring them. Um, but the fact is, family time is family time. Mm. And, uh, and, and you know what? Another thing is this, that I've discovered is that um, sometimes a phone call is does as much good for people yeah. as if I drive half an hour to go and sit with them for half an hour That's and good. drive half an hour back. Yeah. And so particularly when it cuts into time I need to spend with my family. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I called someone the other day uh, just to see how they're doing. I, and I got a, an email today from his wife saying that was you would not believe that was like a mm. shot of medicine for yeah. him. I was on the phone for three minutes, probably. <laughs> That's wow. Yeah, it's so good. So I think you've got to kind of, you, you know, it's it's getting out of, I've got to do this, i got to mm. do this. No, you haven't got to do this. And, and since you asked the question, I could go on all day. <laughs> but I'll, let me put this in as well. Yeah. One of the things I learned over the years, yeah. that when somebody has a crisis, I need to talk to you today. Mm there's a pretty good chance that crisis has been going on for months. Mm -hmm. But today's the day when yeah. suddenly they want to take priority in your list of stuff. Wow. And, and you know, it's okay to say to people, I can't do that today. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah. 
I can't go to every party I'm invited to. People don't invite me much nowadays, so that's fine. Um, they probably think it's an antisocial old so-and-so. But, um, yeah. but they don't ask me. You don't have to mm. because yes. I need time with my family. I need time for myself. Amen. Amen. And you know what? I haven't lost too many friends because I said, <laughs> hey, thanks for inviting me to the barbecue. That's really kind of you, but I'm sorry, I can't make it. And I don't have to lie about it. Say, well, you know, I've got an appointment that afternoon. Yeah. You know, my appointment, maybe sitting and watching the Mets on TV, but yeah, I don't have to do that even. <laughs> it's like, thanks for inviting me, but I won't be able to make it. Amen. Oh, so Garge good. time, Garge family time. Amen. So, uh, and I can attest to all these, not to big up Roger, but working for him for now for almost three to four years here. Uh, that is not just something he is saying, that is something he actually infuses in his staff. Um, so yeah, this is real stuff here, people. Uh, something I, I come to think is as a, a person in ministry, um, and I know some other local youth pastors, youth directors, guys who work at churches with good pastors, but they kind of have the mentality what they went through, you got to go through it too. You know, lift up your bootstraps and go on with it. And I hate to say even some things with the family, and obviously it goes to the lesson they haven't learned yet. But is it ever a struggle for you, Roger, being someone who's done ministry for 50 years? Um, how does that, it just seems to come so naturally, especially when pouring into younger people in ministry and sharing this wisdom. Is it even a struggle or is it just something that's been so concretely you've learned that it's just, no, this is how it's supposed to be? No, I think I've learned a better way to do it. And, yeah. and you know, most of us in life, that's part of it, isn't it? We, yeah. we, you know, we learn a better way to do a lot of things. So if I found a better way to do ministry mm. than the way I did it at the start, yeah. um, it would be totally wrong for me to impose on somebody who's part of my team mm. and say, sorry, you got to sweat first, you know, you got to pay your, you know, you know the phrase, yeah. Yeah, you got to pay your pay dues, you, do. you yes. know? Yes. And it's like, no, no, you don't. Wow. If, if I found a better way to do this, then I want you to do it the better way. If I find a way in which I can be a better husband and a better father while still fulfilling the role God's given me in ministry, yeah. then I want to help you to be a better husband and a better father while you fulfill your role. You know, I don't, so no, my job's not to make it hard for people. It's to, you know, it's, it's to help them to do everything they need to be. And it's a rounded picture. And our ministry is part of our lives, but yeah. not all of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, just to, again, the big up Roger and how he, he does really live this, not just with me, but other people on staff. Uh, there was something I heard a while ago, Roger, and making me think of this, where I talked about people in leadership positions. There's two ways you can look at developing younger people, being around younger people, anyone who's coming to you and trusting you with their development is you can be the kind of leader, uh, I talked about earlier, that's like, you know, you're saying, I've been through it, you know what I mean? You got to go through it too. Um, and the other type of leader is the kind of leader that uh, makes ladders. And uh, that idea is instead of making the path harder, exactly what you're saying, you've created ladders. And I could say personally from my own experience, you've created many ladders for me where you've made my path easier. So sorry, I'm just on a tangent right now, but I just uh, this is something that, again, guys, and I know you know Roger, but for maybe someone who's not listening, uh, this is something that he's really living. And I've been blessed a part of him living that. So sorry, not so much a question, but just a, a big up to Roger cool. real yeah. quick. Um, so... Uh, I guess the thing uh, to close with again, Roger, do you have any other closing notes? This is a really, really packed, really dense kind of uh, convo that I think a lot of people can learn from, not just in ministry, uh, but any closing notes just on balancing and... Yeah, I, I think when it comes down to it, it's like, you know, John in one of his epistles, and I should know which one it is, but uh, anyway, <laughs> one of them, trust me, it says this. He says this, I've no greater joy than to know that my children walk in love. Mm. He wasn't there talking necessarily about physical children, but let's apply it to physical children. There is no greater joy that I have in life than to see my children with a very real faith in God 
and a faith that impacts their lives that means that their passion is to serve others and, and the truth is this what what would it profit me if i saved the whole world but lost my own family mm, mm, nothing yes. at all so that's you know that's why you know here's the things that are my passion my faith is my passion my family is my passion and in the next episode i'll tell you the third amen that's a good teaser so that is our uh part three this is uh the end of our episode but thank you so much uh for listening again uh please uh there's so many ways you can connect to us uh roger what's your email again so i don't mess it up roger at genesisli.com roger what's our website so i don't mess it up oh man <laughs> It's a tough one. GenesisLI.com. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we're on Facebook, too. If you uh, search Genesis uh, Long Island, we'll come right up. Um, again, we're doing a, we have our podcast also for Sunday that's in this feed. So please, if you are listening, you haven't yet subscribed, please subscribe. But that's it for uh, the fourth quarter with Rogers. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>